The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I would invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Luke, chapter 6. We'll begin with verse 27 this morning, and we will, uh, we will read down to verse 36. The word of the Lord, Jesus speaking. He said, But I say to you who hear, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. Lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your word, we are humbled by it, and we humble ourselves before it. Perhaps no more difficult words to obey have ever been uttered by you, Lord Jesus, than the ones we have just read. And our flesh this morning will attempt every strategy that we have at our command to avoid obeying what you've said, to avoid doing what you've called us to do, to avoid being the kind of people that you are creating us to be and making us into. Your values are upside down from the world's values. Your values are upside down from everything we've been taught and everything we've learned in our experience here. We have no hope, Lord, even to begin to obey these things apart from the work of your Holy Spirit in us. So this morning, Lord, we humble ourselves before your word. We confess our own sin. It's exposed so clearly in these words. And we plead for your mercy and your grace and your help, both to understand what you said and to do it. And we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Despite the way many present the gospel these days, the call to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is a call to die to self. Jesus said it himself. He said, if anyone would, would, would come after me, he has to take up his cross and follow after me. Deny himself, take up his cross and follow after me. The, the, the pursuit of Christ from beginning to end is a, a journey of self-denial and of dying to self. 
of dying to my own wants and my own desires and my own needs, of dying to my own thoughts and my own actions and my own behaviors, and dying to my fleshly responses to the things that happen to me and around me. It's a, it's a continual journey of death, dying to myself and living for Christ. I don't think there's any text in all of the New Testament, really in all of the Bible, that makes clear that that's what it means to follow Christ than the one that we'll look at this morning. Because I trust, as we read the text a few moments ago, you thought to yourself the same thing I think to myself every time I read this text. There's no way I can do this. There's no way. No way. And that's true. There is no way I can obey this text. There is no way I can obey Christ like this apart from dying to myself and coming alive to him. There is no way you can either. There is no way to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just do better and come into submission to this call of Christ that we'll hear and read and look at this morning. You simply cannot do it. Nor can I. It only happens in response to the work of God in us. To the transformative power of the Spirit of God within us. Making us into someone that we are not. Causing us to desire things that we absolutely are repulsed by in our flesh. Motivating us to do things that we would never in a million years do on our own. Except by His impulse. And by His work inside of us. Transforming both our desires and our behaviors. We've been looking in Luke chapter 6 and listening as Jesus has been laying out what is commonly known as the Beatitudes, or at least a portion of them that Luke has recorded for us here. And we've been seeing how he's explained to us what the values of his kingdom are in comparison to the values of the kingdom of the world in which we live. And he's been showing us how the values of his kingdom and his kingdom people are 180 degrees opposite from the values of the world and the people who live purely on a horizontal plane here in the world and for the world and of the world. The ways of God are completely different and the character of his people and the values of his people are vastly different. They are 180 degrees apart, completely upside down from one another. But nothing we have seen thus far even begins to hold a candle to what we see in the text this morning, to what Christ says on the end of these Beatitudes. It's absolutely inconceivable what he says here. Frankly, from a human and worldly perspective, it's absolutely outright stupid. If you said this to anybody in the world who did not know Christ as their Lord and Savior, who had not experienced the transformation of the Holy Spirit in their heart, they would think you'd lost your ever-loving mind. They would call you a fool. Because he begins with a very simple command that is so simple to understand, but so very difficult to do. He simply says it this way. But I say to you, who here, love your enemies. Love your enemies. When you hear those words, how does that resound in your heart? 
love your enemies. Love them. It is absolutely counterintuitive, and our flesh immediately draws back at even hearing the sound of those words together. That I am somehow called in obedience to Christ to love people who are positioned as my enemy. There is no more relevant text, although difficult as it is, there's no more relevant text for us to hear and to read and to think about right now in our culture in this moment. Because we live in a, a culture that has become incredibly toxic and divisive on all fronts. Where pressures are coming all around us from every angle, trying to divide people and separate people into categories of friend and enemy. Trying to define for us who are our friends and who are our enemies. Our friends are the people who are vaccinated or unvaccinated and our enemies are the other group. Our friends are the people who wear a mask or don't wear a mask, and our enemies are the other group. Our friends are the people who fit into this box, and our enemies are everybody who's outside of it. All around us, we're being told to, to faction off into groups, to group up with friends, and everybody else is to be viewed as an enemy. Well, it's a foolish way of living to begin with, but even if we accept the premise and operate on that, Jesus allows us no evasion and no confusion about how we're to treat people in our group or outside of our group, in our box or out of our box. When he says very simply, love your enemies. Now when we read this, we say to ourselves, if you're like me, we say there's got to be something here hidden in the language that makes this something other than what it seems to be right here on the surface, right? There's got to be some out. There's got to be some avenue. There's got to be some cultural context that gives me a way to avoid having to do what seems rather plain. He cannot mean what it looks like he means on the surface here. I mean, when I think about my life and, and I think about the relationships in my world and I think about the different people and categories of people I relate to, it, it's hard to love the people that I like consistently and perfectly and well. I mean, I don't, there, there's nobody that I like more than my own family. And I fail regularly to love them well and to love them perfectly. I can't even love them rightly. It's hard enough to live up to that mantle. And, and if I expand the circle outside of my family to, 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 to my friends, to a, sort of the broader circle of people that I, I navigate in some sort of a, a personal, friendly relationship with, even those people I find difficult to love at times, as they do me, I'm sure. My friends even disappoint me. My friends even from time to time hurt me. My friends even say to me things that are, that are wounding and painful to hear sometimes. My friends even treat me poorly at times. So do yours. And it's very difficult for me to, to love them well and to love them consistently and to love them perfectly. But if I were to expand the, 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 the circle out even beyond my friends and just say to the broader world of Christians, like at least all the people who have proclaimed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ like I am. And even there, I have a hard time loving people consistently and loving people perfectly. And then when you expand that circle even further and you say, okay, it's not just your family and it's not just your friends and it's not just the people who share a faith like you do, but, but let's expand it even further out to the strangers that I meet just in the community. Strangers I rub shoulders with in, in Walmart. Strangers that I run across on Facebook. Strangers that I bump into here and there. Strangers that I see on TV. I'm supposed to love them too? How hard is that? 
hard is that? I largely give myself an excuse to take no responsibility to love those folks. But here, Jesus doesn't even stop with that circle. He says, beyond that, you are to love your enemies. Not just your family, not just your friends, not just other Christians, not just the strangers you meet in public, but people who are your active enemies. The call in my life is to love my enemies. What an astounding thing to say. We, we, we have really no parallel command to this that, that covers the, the sort of same extent in the Old Testament or really anywhere else in the New Testament. The closest we have is in Exodus chapter 23 in the Old Testament, verse 5, where the Word of God simply says this, If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Well, that's fascinating. But immediately, I can evade that one. Like, it is not very often that I run across a donkey crash on the highway. And the odds of it being one of my enemies, being crashing with his donkey and me having to rescue them, I'm pretty sure I'll go my whole life without that one. I'm feeling pretty safe at that point. We have Proverbs 24, 17, which simply says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Okay, now that's a little, that's taking it up a step from the donkey crash, right? Okay, so, so godly values and kingdom values, values of God's people involve, okay, not, not, uh, not laughing at my enemy or, or, or finding joy in their suffering or in their failure, not gloating when they fall or not being proud in my heart when they stumble. Okay, that's a little harder to do, a little more practical. I have some opportunities for that one. Proverbs 25, verse 21 and following sort of ups the ante even a little bit more than that where it simply tells us if your enemy is hungry, right, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, do what? Give him some water to drink for you'll heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Okay, that's raising the bar even higher. So now I, now I don't just have to rescue the donkey crash enemy, but I have to try to not rejoice when my enemy has something, some calamity happen in their life and not say something like, ha ha, you deserve that, to resist that urge. But now here I actually have to do something. If I see an enemy and they're hungry, I have to actively give them food. And, and if they're thirsty, I have to actively do something to help them. But immediately I can say, okay, I can sort of pull myself up by the bootstraps and do that one. I can give somebody who's hungry some food while resenting it the whole way, right? Yeah, you're hungry. We've got some tofu over here. That'll... They'll sustain you. Have some tofu. I can obey Proverbs 25 with tofu. Not to give you something good, just to give you something. But when we get to the Sermon on the Mount in the words of Christ, Jesus raises the bar astronomically from there when he says, you are to love your enemies not just rescue them from a donkey crash, not just resist the urge to rejoice when something bad happens to them, not just reluctantly feed them if they're hungry. They're to love them. It's not a call to simply avoid doing harm to enemies. It's a call for active, intentional love 
for people who are our enemies. Think about that. It is all-encompassing. There is no out. There is no, there is no side road. There is no way to evade. And so as we start to look at this, we have to think through at least two questions that are absolutely critical to understanding exactly what it is Jesus is calling us to here. We have to understand, first of all, what is love? What does he mean when he says love? And we have to understand the second question, who then are my enemies? Because if it's a very simple statement, love your enemies, we need to understand the nature of love, and we need to know who are our enemies that we are supposed to then love. Because both of these words in English can be used in several ways. We have to look closely here and see what exactly is it that Jesus means so that we don't, in some way, undercut the impact of what he's saying. So we'll look at the first question, what is love? What images come to your mind when you hear the, the word love? Apart from the fact that I've already set it up in the context of this text, if somebody just caught you in a, a word on the street interview, what, what is love? How would you answer that question? What, what, what images would pop up in your mind? Would you think of romance immediately? Would you think of your family? Would you think of your children? What, what kind of love would you imagine when you hear the word love? Lots of people have lots of different ideas that pop to their mind when they hear that word. I ran across a while back a, 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 a thing where they had done some interviews with children, with kids, and asked them uh, questions about love. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating. This one young lady by the name of Regina was asked about love and her thoughts on love. She's 10 years old. She said this simply. She said, I'm not rushing into being in love. I'm finding fourth grade hard enough. I like Regina. It's an honest young lady, right? The interviewers asked some of the kids this, how do you make a, how do you make a person fall in love with you? How do you make a person fall in love with you? A young man by the name of Dell had this to say, to, and I like Dell too. He says this. He says, tell them you own a whole bunch of candy stores. It's a six-year-old, right? I'll love you if you, own, if you own candy stores. Alonzo has some great advice. He says, don't do things like have smelly green sneakers. You might get attention, but attention ain't the same thing as love. Hey, listen, Alonzo's got some wisdom, doesn't he? Some wisdom some adults I know need to hear, right? Like, the smelly sneakers part, probably, but also the idea that attention isn't the same as love. It's not. They were asked, how do you tell if two adult diners in a restaurant are in love? Here's what Brad says. He says, lovers will be just staring at each other and their food will get cold. Other people care more about the food. That's going to transform how you eat lunch when you go out today, isn't it? Christine said this. She said, if lo it, 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 it's love if they order one of those desserts that are on fire. They like to order those because it's just like how their hearts are, on fire. I like Christine, too. This is, I think, my favorite. The question was, what are most people thinking when they say, I love you? Michelle has a brilliant answer. The person is thinking, yeah, I really do love him, but I hope he showers at least once a day. That's great. If you have kids, you understand that. Michelle is tuned into her peers. Now, kids have understanding of love. You have understandings of 
what it means to love. And we use the English word love in a whole lot of different ways, don't we? Like, I use the word love a lot of different ways. There's a sense in which I love my wife. I love her with a particular kind of love. But I also love my son. But it's different than the way that I love my wife. I love my church family, but I don't love my church family the same way that I love my wife. I also love coconut pie. The custard coconut, custard pie, that kind. You know, the fluffy one that's really good with the, you know, if any of you make it. I love coconut pie. Same word, but it doesn't have the same meaning as I love my wife. I love Clemson football. You can moan or you can cheer. That's okay. But it's the same word. But I don't love Clemson football the same way I love my son or the way I love my church family. It's the same word in all of those contexts, but it has very different meaning, very different sort of nuances in the way that it's used. So when we come to the Greek language from which our New Testament is translated, we have multiple Greek words that are all translated by the same English word, love. You've probably heard this at some point if you've studied the Bible or if you've listened to many sermons, so I won't belabor the point, but there's at least four words, the first being philia. If you've ever been to Philadelphia, then you have the idea for what this means. It's just a, a, a love that, that's the kind of love that's, that happens between friends. It's a, a friendship kind of love. That's why Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love because philia is a word that connotes the idea of brotherly love. So when we have a Greek word philia that's it, used when talking about the love between friends, there's a, another word, the word storge, which is a word for, that, that connotes natural affection or love for family, the kind of love you have for those that are close to you in your family in a, a natural sort of affectionate way. There's eros or eros, which is a romantic, sensual kind of love. We have all sorts of English words that derive from that. It's a love of desire and love of passion, those sorts of things. The word used here, though, is not any of those words. It's the word agape. It's a word that really uh, was, was fallen out of use in Greek at the time and and so the New Testament writers sort of filled it with the meaning, and it's a meaning that, that, that carries the idea of the unique kind of love that God displays towards people and toward the world. It's, it's a godly sort of love. It's a, a unique love that is defined by and displayed by God himself. It's a love that, that actively works for the welfare of others. It's a love that is not based on the value or the merit of the object being loved. And there's absolutely nothing natural about it. It comes from God to believers. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This agape love, this, this kind of love, it, it, it comes from God. We're called in 1 John to love one another with this kind of a self-giving, sacrificial love that actively works for the welfare of, of our brothers because we are able to do this because God has given us the ability. This is what he is, it's who he is, and he has given us this love. This love is from God, and whoever does it, lives it, obeys it, displays it, is giving evidence that they're born of God and they know God. It is, in fact, a defining mark of Christians in general. In the next verse, verse 8, it simply says this, anyone who does not agape simply doesn't know God because God is love. Someone who absolutely cannot love their brothers in the body of Christ, John is saying, with a sacrificial, self-giving love 
whether they deserve it or they don't, whether, whether they uh, reciprocate or they don't. Anyone who isn't willing to actively work for the welfare of others, regardless of whether they've earned it or not, simply doesn't know God. Because this is who God is. And to know God is to be transformed into his image. And so the one who isn't being transformed into his image and, and something as foundational as love does not know him. They followed another God. Or better yet, they've created another God. When the Bible speaks of this kind of love, it does not define love in terms of feelings. This is critically important to understand what Jesus is calling us to here. When the Bible speaks of agape love and this kind of love, it has really very little to do with feelings. It is never described in terms of feelings. In fact, this kind of love is described consistently in terms not of how it feels, but in, in terms of what it does. Not in terms of feelings, but in terms of action. The emphasis is on what love does rather than how love feels. The Bible doesn't begin with the question, how do you feel about this person? The Bible begins with the question of what choices are you making in regards to how you're acting toward that person when it comes to love. Perhaps the most, the most well-known passage in the New Testament relating to love is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Many of you probably, if you're married, had this read in your wedding ceremony at some point, or at least in your marital counseling. Paul writes, love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You listen to how love is described here and how it is defined here. Can you find anything in that text that has anything to do with how love feels? It's all about what love does. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It refuses to insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. It doesn't rejoice when wrong happens. It rejoices with the truth. It believes things. It hopes things. It endures things. That's all action. Biblical love is not some passing emotion. It's a way of life. It's a disposition. It's a permanent commitment to the welfare of others. And because of this, it is entirely possible for me and for you to love somebody genuinely, even though we don't particularly like them. We need to be careful that we understand reality here when Jesus says that we're to love our enemies. It doesn't mean we're to feel a positive emotion about them at every moment, that we're to like them. That when they punch us in the face, we're to say, oh man, that was fantastic. You're my best friend. I want to hang out with you every day. Can you do that some more? That's nonsense. The issue isn't how we feel. The issue is, the issue is what we do and how we act. This kind of love is a love of action. It's not a love of feeling. It's a love that is given in regardless of how it's responded to. It's a godly kind of love. It's different than any other kind of love. 
It comes from God. It comes to us by the power of God. And every time that we exercise it, we're exercising something that is godly. And we are behaving like him. That's what this word love means. Well, who are our enemies, though? That's another question we need to answer. Who are the enemies here? Who are the people that we're to, to, to love like this? Well, there is one similar passage in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. We do have this in the Old Testament. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. Neighbors could be expanded to mean, probably should have been expanded to be understood, even in that context, as those who are positively and negatively inclined toward us. But what had happened is by the time of Christ, the, all of the rabbis in, in Judaism had, had interpreted and redefined even this specific uh, injunction here and had defined the neighbor in a very, very limited sort of a scope. It, it only applied to other people in the community of faith, they said. And really, in some cases, even more narrow than that, people who we were in positive relationship with. So they took a very simple command of God that should have been expanded and they actually contracted it and made it much more easy to do. So there's no doubt about it and so we're not tempted to do the same thing with Jesus' words. He gives us some very clear examples here of who our enemies are so that we know specifically and precisely exactly who he's talking about when he says to you, you are to love your enemies. Who are our enemies? My enemies are the people who hate me. They are the people who curse me. They are the people who abuse me. They are the people who steal from me. They are the people who borrow things from me and don't give them back. Those are my enemies. He gives us a simple list here that's very practical that we can understand. Who are your enemies? Your enemies are people who hate you. They are people who curse you. They are people who abuse you. They are people who steal from you. Those are enemies. And Jesus is giving us examples as a sample list, not as an exhaustive list. This is a sampling of the kind of people who fit the category of enemy. It really includes anybody who comes against us or anybody who persecutes us. Those are the people that he says and that he means that we are to love. Are you kidding me? To love people who hate me? I have to love people who curse me? You mean to love people who abuse me? That's right. Is there anything more counterintuitive to you? Is there anything more upside down to what your flesh wants to do when you receive cursing or hatred or abuse? How do we normally respond to that stuff? We normally respond with anger, right? Do you know what it's like to be cursed or abused or hated and to become angry? To, to be tempted to match their hostility with your own hostility? To, 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 to armor up and go to war with that person? Is that what comes natural to you? It's what comes natural to me. Retaliation comes natural to me. Oh, you've hurt me? I got you. I'll show you what hurt looks like. I'll find your weakness, and I'll come at you right there. We pursue vengeance. We pursue tit for tat. We seek to hurt them in the way that they've hurt us. If you can't identify with anger or retaliation or vengeance, I bet you can identify with separation. Separation. 
right? All right, I may not be angry at you. I may not choose to retaliate against you. I may not uh, come at you and go to war with you. But I'll tell you this, I'm going to separate from you. I'm going to build a wall between me and you. I'm going to avoid you. I have nothing to do with you. I'm going to ignore you. I'm going to pretend like you don't even exist. Ever, ever responded to cursing or hatred or abuse that way? Or how about demands? Do we respond with demands? We demand justice because we're being treated unfairly. We just come at hostility with demands for justice. Demands that this be made right. We gossip but we slander that person who's doing it. That enemy who's cursed us or abused us or hated us. Maybe we don't go to war with them. Maybe we don't seek to hurt them the way they hurt us. But boy, everybody in our circle is going to know who they are and what they've done. We're going to gossip about them. We're going to demean them. We're going to trash talk them to other people. We're going to destroy their reputations. Warn everybody so that they don't get hurt the way we get hurt. Our natural inclination is all these things. is to hold grudges against people who do things to us, right? To refuse to let go of the offense to keep the fire burning, to keep replaying the tape over and over and over in our head. Getting angry about it all over again. Listen, you know every one of those responses because just like me, those are the natural inclinations of your heart when somebody abuses you, when somebody hates you, when somebody curses you, when somebody mocks you, when somebody wounds you. here we have the Lord Jesus Christ saying to us love your enemies love your enemies bless those who curse you you've got to be kidding me in case we're not sure what love looks like in case we're not sure what it means to actually practically in a real sense love them he gives us sort of a list of practical applications for his simple command to love our enemies he says it this way he says do good to those who hate you bless those who curse you pray for those who abuse you turn the other cheek to those who slap you give freely to those who take things from you if you want to know what loving your enemies looks like here's a good sample list of examples of the actions of love toward people who are your enemies the ones who hate you don't hate them back don't merely avoid them do good to them do good to them it's more than just avoiding doing bad to them it's an intentional action to do good and act for the welfare of my enemy it, it precludes separation we can't simply avoid them it precludes retaliation responding in kind when somebody comes at us with hatred we are to actively do good things toward them act toward their welfare do things for their benefit not for their harm do good to those who hate you it speaks to actions and it's not just about actions though he says bless those who curse you he moves from actions to now to words it's not just in our actions because remember our Old Testament example you know if your enemy's hungry you give them something to eat you remember tofu we can do tofu we can do tofu we can do some of that reluctantly 
So he moves from actions to words to attitudes of the heart. It's not just that we do good to them, but he says, bless those who curse you. The word bless here is a word that literally means to speak well, to speak well. And it means more than just not cursing back at them. It means to intentionally, actively choose to speak well of them to them and to other people about them. It's to refuse to trash talk about them to other people. It's to refuse to expose them on social media. It's to refuse to gossip and to slander their name. It's to refuse to, uh, to, to, to generate pity for yourself by going around and telling other people how badly this other person has treated you. Bless those who curse you. It's to make a point to present them in the best light to other people. Are you kidding me? I bless those who curse me. You mean not just my actions, but my words? I have to speak well to them and of them? Is it just me, or when you walk through this, you're thinking, this is impossible. This, I can't do this. It is entirely possible. I mentioned to you last week, I quoted from Richard Wormbrand from his book, Tortured for Christ. He was a Romanian pastor who was arrested and imprisoned during the communist era in Romania. In his book, he talks about one of his colleagues, a man by the name of Grecu, who was imprisoned in a place called Gerla Prison. I've been to that prison before. It's still there. And he talks about this man Grecu, this believer who was imprisoned falsely just for his faith. And here's what he says in one of his excerpts about this man. He says, Grecu was sentenced to be beaten to death. The process lasted a few weeks during which he was beaten very slowly. He would be hit once at the bottom of his feet with a rubber club and then left. After some minutes, he would be hit again. After another few minutes, again, he was beaten in his private parts. Then a doctor would come in and give him an injection and he'd recover. And once he was recovered, he would be given very good food to restore his strength and then he'd be beaten again until he eventually died under this slow, repeated beating. The primary man who led his torture was a member of the Central, Communist, the Central Committee of the Communist Party, and his name was Reck, R-E-C-K. During the beatings, Reck said something to Greku that communists often said to Christians. He said this, Reck said this, You know I am God. I have power of life and death over you. The one who's in heaven cannot decide to keep you in life. Everything depends upon me. If I wish, you live. If I wish, you are killed. I am God. It's mocking the man's faith. In the midst of this horrible treatment, in the, more, in the, in the midst of somebody cursing him like this and mocking him to his face, Grecu's answer is remarkable. He said this to Rick. He said, you don't know what a deep thing you've said. Every caterpillar is in reality a butterfly if it develops rightly. You've not been created to be a torturer or a man who kills. You've been created to become like God with the life of the Godhead in your heart. 
Many who've been persecutors like you have come to realize, like the Apostle Paul, that it's shameful for a man to commit atrocities, that they can do much better things. So they become partakers in the divine nature. Jesus said this to the Jews at his time. You are gods. Believe me, Mr. Wreck, your real calling is to be godlike, to have the character of God, not a torturer. What does it look like to bless those who curse you? That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. Richard Wormbrand continues. He says, Reck didn't pay much attention to the words of his victim at that particular time. But over time, those words worked in his heart. And he later came to understand that that was indeed his real calling. And he gave his heart to Christ. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. That's actions, that's words. But it goes deeper. He says, pray for those who abuse you. Now we've gone from actions to our words, right on down to the motives and the attitudes of our heart. Pray for those who abuse you. Now your flesh is like mine and you immediately start flipping your Bible to Psalms. You're like, I know in Psalms there's some imprecatory prayers in there, in there somewhere. Dash their children on the rocks, Lord. That's the prayer I'm going to pray. It's not what he's talking about here. What kind of prayers are we to pray for those who abuse us? Similar to what Greku was saying. We pray for their deliverance. Pray that God would redeem them. Pray that God would forgive them. Pray that God would, would save them from the misery and the sin that they're living in. You know, it's very hard to harbor hatred in your heart towards somebody that you regularly pray for. You know that? It is very, very difficult. Pray for those who abuse you. So it's not just that my enemies are people who, who, who hate me and I'm to be good in my actions toward them and it's not just that my enemies are also people who curse me and I'm to respond in my words in a way that blesses them rather than curses them but in my heart I'm to genuinely pray for and desire that God would redeem them and forgive them and save them let me give you a quick caution as we think in terms of this this is not a call to stay in harm's way when you're being physically abused Jesus is not saying here, if somebody's physically abusing you, if you're a wife and you have an abusive husband that is, that is abusing you, that you're to, to stay in that situation and pray. Now, the Bible is crystal clear in other places that we're to, we have absolutely the right and the responsibility to get ourselves out from underneath that and to get to safety. We can get to safety and still pray for somebody. It's not a call to be a punching bag or a doormat, but it is a call to have a particular direction of the heart that desires that God genuinely would redeem those who treat us abusively. He goes on to give more examples. He says, turn the other cheek to those who, to, who slap you. If someone hits you on the cheek, turn the other one. There's more here in view than physical violence. There's a whole cultural backdrop that our time doesn't really give us much time to speak to this, but I'll give you a couple of examples. R.T. France writes this. He says, that what's being talked about here in this slap on the cheek 
It's a slap on the cheek that is a calculated insult for which damages actually could be claimed in court. Daryl Bach says the religious context makes it likely that the slap here is, is intended and that an insult is in view. An ancient slap usually involved the back of the hand and may picture public rejection from the synagogue. It's a, an abuse of power, a misuse of personal authority. Again, it's not a call to be a punching bag and to sit there and, and desire physical abuse from somebody. But what Christ is saying is here, here is very simply this. It's a simple call uh, to not fight back when we're being insulted, to not fight back when we're being humiliated. We're to be willing to face additional insults and be willing to face additional humiliation, if necessary, for Christ. It goes on to say, give freely to those who take from you. So those who beg from you, give them their stuff. He talks about somebody who takes your cloak. A cloak was an outer garment that, that was expensive. People usually only had one of them. They were multi-purpose. You wore them to keep warm, but at night, sometimes if you weren't where you normally lived, you sleep outside somewhere, you used it as a blanket to keep you, keep you warm. And so if somebody stole your cloak, it was a major offense. It was an expensive thing to lose. Jesus says, if somebody takes your, your cloak, offer to give them your shirt too. Again, there's hyperbole involved here. The other thing he says, if someone's begging from you, don't refuse to give to them, even if, if, you know, even if you don't expect a return. And the point is simply this. You understand it if you have a house and if you have neighbors and your neighbors ever said, hey, can I borrow your shovel? And they borrow your shovel and you never see that shovel ever again, right? What happens when the next time your neighbor knocks on your door and says, can I borrow a tape measure? First thing out of your mouth is, hey, you remember my shovel? You think I'm an idiot? I learned from the shovel incident not to give you my tape measure. When he talks about people who beg here, he's talking about this issue of borrowing, and he's simply talking in terms of that and the cloak and the tunic. Both are, are, are principles that relate to generosity and response to greed. And he's simply saying, when people take from us, even when it's taking unjustly, we're to go overboard and offering them more. That's what love looks like in that context. Your neighbor stole your shovel and didn't give it back and he asked for your tape measure, offer him your tape measure. And don't expect to get the tape measure back. And don't demand it. And don't hold a grudge when he doesn't return it. It's a call to hold our possessions loosely and to be willing to part with him even when they're unfairly taken. It's to forego rights to compensation and reimbursement. And it's to offer even more than our opponent demands. shake your head and say, are you kidding me? Love my enemies looks like that. And so that we don't try to evade like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, he gives us a caution. He says, look, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that? If you do what the scribes and Pharisees teach you and just love people who are like you, you're absolutely no different than the world because sinners do that all the time. There's no difference between the church and the world when you act like that, when you love people who love you. There's no difference between my church and my people in the world when you do good to people who do good to you. There's no difference between my people and the world when you lend to those expecting to receive because the world lends to people expecting to receive all the time. There's no good in all that. If you live like that, you're living like the world, you're worldly, and you don't belong to me. Don't even go there. No, love your enemies, do good. 
give away your stuff expecting nothing in return. And here's the motive for it all. When you do that, you'll be sons of the Most High God. Your reward will be great. For he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. It's the linchpin to this whole entire text. The motive for behaving this way in the world in which you live is simply one thing. It is the character of God. That's the motive. The motive is the character of God. We are to love like this because this is exactly the way that he loves. That when we choose to love our enemies, we are doing exactly what God does all the time. We love because he first loved us. When we love, we are doing what he has already done, and we are acting godly in that particular moment. I'm to love my enemy. I'm to bless those who curse me. I'm to offer more things to the somebody who takes my stuff. I'm to do these things, and I'm to do it with a pure heart and with an attitude of prayer for the benefit of that person. Not because I want to, not because it comes natural to me, not because I'm expecting some reciprocal sort of a gain. I'm simply to do this because I'm that kind of a recipient of the love of God. Because I've received that kind of love from God. That's why I treat other people that way. When you and I love our enemies, when we love like this, we are showing the world how God loves. You are never more godly and godlike than when you love your enemy. And you are never more unlike the world around you than when you love your enemies. You and I have no prayer of even remotely obeying this command of Christ until our desire to obey God eclipses our desire for revenge, our desire to protect pride, our desire to be validated, our desire to be justified, our desire to, be, to get vengeance, our desire to hang on to a grudge. Those are powerful desires that you experience and I do. And we will never overcome them until our desire to be godly becomes more important to us than those other desires. The motive for loving our enemies is God loved us that way. He says he's kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. That's who God is. He's a God who's kind to ungrateful people. He's a God who's kind to evil people. In Matthew 5.45 says he, he makes the sun, he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. He's simply talking about common grace. Every good thing that happens in the world, every good thing that happens to anybody who lives and breathes from their first breath until their death is a gift of God and it's an expression of his love and his goodness. And he expresses his love and his goodness to people who curse him and hate him every single minute of every single day. Every time God brings rain on the field of a farmer who hates him, 
He's showing us what it looks like to love an enemy. Every time he gives a promotion in the office to someone who curses his name, blesses them with a raise to be able to care for their family, he's loving his enemies and doing good to those who curse him. He's kind to the ungrateful and he's kind to the evil. He's merciful. The only way you and I will ever begin to love our enemies is when we come to clear terms with the reality that at one time we were his enemies and he loved us. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us. Say this with me. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When I was a sinner, when I was an enemy, when I cursed God, he sent his son to die for me. He loved me. He loved me, his enemy. He sent his son to die for me when I was his enemy, when I hated him. God sets the bar for enemy love by sending Jesus for us. He's doing, when, when God sent his only begotten son into the world to redeem the world, he's doing good to people who hate him. He's blessing people who curse him. He's refusing to retaliate against people who strike out at him. He's still giving to those who are ripping off his creation already. He's exemplifying all of these things that Christ calls us to do. And there is no better example of this than Christ himself. He is the perfect example. He was hated, yet he didn't respond to hatred with hatred. He was cursed and he was mocked and he was abused and he was beaten. He had his very tunic ripped off of him and his shirt, he was stripped naked and nailed to a Roman cross. And in all the mix of it, Peter tells us that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And even hanging on the cross with the very last drop of blood bleeding out of his body, he said one thing, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He prayed for those who abused him, that they'd be forgiven. Let me tell you something, my friend. You and I are recipients of the extravagant love of God. And, and we need to come to terms with the reality that there is not one stinking thing that we've done to earn that or to deserve it. He gave it to, to us when we were his enemies, when we absolutely did not deserve it. And he does that every day all around the world. The only way you and I will ever come under submission to this text is when we come to terms with the reality that God has loved us like this. And our desire to be like him becomes more important to us than all the fleshly responses that come natural to us. Love your enemies. Let's just get practical for a minute. How are we doing on this? Who are your enemies? I'm not talking about in general terms. I'm talking about specific to you. Who right now in your world and in your life is positioned in opposition to you in some way as an enemy? Who's that person that's coming against you? Somebody in your office? Somebody that you work with? Supervisor? Coworker? A neighbor? 
some friend that you're estranged from, that you've been holding a grudge from forever, for playing the tape over and over again, justifying your anger to your spouse, your spouse that, that you're butting heads, and now they're your enemy, and you're tempted to retaliate, and you're tempted to be angry, and you're tempted to separate yourself, and silent treatment, tempted to hold grudges, tempted to return evil for evil, tempted to get vengeance, tempted to withhold good. What does it look like in that context in your life right now to love your enemy? To do good to those who hurt you. To bless those who curse you. To be generous in giving to the one who takes from you. Listen, this is a painful, painful text when you start thinking of it in those terms. It is very painful and it cuts to the very core of who you are as a person. And there is no way for me and there is no way for you to evade this thing. There's no side road and there's no out. The only question at the end of the day is not do I want to do these things? It's do I desire to be godly? Do I desire to show the world how God loves? Do I desire to honor Christ by loving him, by loving others the way he loves others and the way he's loved me? I suspect this morning as these things marinate in your heart, maybe even throughout this day, a couple of things are going to be warranted in your life. One of them is going to be to pray that, God, you would elevate my desire to be godly above all my fleshly desires to react in my flesh so that when these moments come, I want to be godly more than I want to get revenge. And then secondly, I think there are going to be specific areas in your life and specific people in your life that are going to require action on your part, maybe even today, maybe even immediately after this service words of blessing that you need to speak to somebody who's cursed you. Loving, good, kind actions that you need to take towards somebody that you've isolated yourself from. That you've built a wall between you and them. Active love that needs to come from you towards somebody who hasn't been loving toward you. Not because you want to, but because you want to be godly. And you want to honor the one who's loved you like that. You've heard the call of God on your life this morning. Love your enemies. You want to change the world for Christ? It's not going to come from some strategy. It's going to come from living in the world like this. You live like this, people are going to wonder, what in the world is wrong with you? And like that man wreck in that Romanian prison, they may not in the moment, respond in a positive way. But God will use your display of his love to make a difference. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we hear these things and we read them and, and we, there's no, not even a way that we can attempt to just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and do this. We can't do that. There's, no, there's nothing in me that wants to do these things that you've called me to. Nothing. 
I have no strength. I have no ability to do this. My only hope is that you would raise inside of my heart a desire to be godly above a desire to be justified or get vengeance. That you would make it so important to me to be like you and to show what your love is really like to a lost and dying world that I'd be willing to take unjust abuse and unjust cursing and unjust hatred and respond to it just like you respond to it every day when you pour out your common grace on the evil and the good. Expecting nothing in return, demanding nothing reciprocal back, but simply content with the fact that I've honored you and that I've behaved like you behave toward me. It'll only happen, Lord, if I'm convicted in my heart of what an enemy I was of yours when you loved me and sent your son to die for me. I'm pretty good at convincing myself that I'm pretty good. That in some ways I, I, I deserve your good things. When in fact I was your enemy. And I deserve nothing. And you love me anyway. God, more than ever, we need the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning. Not to just hear these words, but to walk out these doors and do them. That you might be glorified in us. And that the world might see how you love. By the way that we love even our enemies. Lord, we pray that you'd help us with these things for Christ's sake. Amen.